0: So one of the great things about Facebook, if you have a, a Facebook profile, is that you get to get back in touch with uh, folks who you may have been friends with a long time ago, you know, 20, 25, 30 years ago, and you get to see that in some cases, wow, they're confirmed, yeah, that person did become a radiologist. That's what they really wanted to be when they were 12, or, you know, they became a doctor, they became a lawyer, they had a big family like they liked, or as they assumed they would have wanted. And sometimes when you get back in touch with your old friends on Facebook you remember exactly why the friendship ended in the first place. (laughs) There's uh, someone I got in touch with through Facebook. He and I were really close. I mean, way back, like 10, 12, 13, 14. We had a falling out. And seen him once since then, and it was fine. I mean, there was no more acrimony between us. And we became Facebook friends earlier this year. And as we've gone through this election season, uh, it's pretty clear that he has... A different perspective on political things than, than I do. And That's fine. I have other friends, other people I care about who vote differently than I do. I mean, I'm disappointed this morning, as I imagine some of you are as well. But throughout this year, as this person's Facebook posts started to unwind themselves, um, there was just real tinged with a kind of resentment and a kind of constant chirpiness and cheap shots at politicians and people I admire and you know, I just—I—it's I, almost like I couldn't help myself from going to check it out. You know, it's like a scab; I just have to kept picking. And so I'd see what is the what, what's the annoying thing he said today. You know, and then it all came down to last Tuesday night, and I was watching um, the election returns, and I saw posted on um, this person's Facebook status: "Voted in anger, felt good." And I started to think. I got to respond to this, and so I, I, in my mind, I started imagining. Even one time, I started typing. I knew I wasn't going to post it, but uh, I, I, I thought maybe in, in, in response I'd say, "Voted in love, canceled out your anger." You know, maybe that would be one that I might try. Maybe one would be, "Voted in hope, blood pressure decreasing, will live longer than you." <laughs> and then the honest one, the one that I really wanted to say, I didn't say any of these, of course. Uh, but it was, um, voted in hope, defriending you in anger. (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) I did not do any of those, you know, because what I caught myself and I caught myself the minute I was doing, didn't stop me from working on this little thought experiment, knowing that I could work it into this message somehow. So I knew I had some fun with it. (laughs) But what I caught myself doing is, you know, decrying certain conditions that I then went on to contribute to create. That was the issue. I was turning the difference between us into hostility. This kind of reactionary, emotional way of living life is tough in any season, and it's been particularly tough in this past election season, when what we oppose becomes, we think, our enemies. And it might even feel temporarily good. I mean, when I was thinking up those little retorts I wanted to type, I felt good. I felt witty. I felt like I had some fun with it. You know, it's... it's. It can be fun, I will admit. It can be fun to sort of throw those metaphorical rocks, you know. Take that, you. But I'm reminded, I'm reminded of deeper wisdom, the kind of wisdom of John Murray, the first great universalist preacher in America. When he was preaching once in a church 200 years ago, this was back in the day and in the age when, you know, preaching what he did was put a sort of target on your back. I mean preaching that God's love belonged to every being, regardless regardless, was controversial, especially in old Calvinistic New England. And so he was preaching one day and, you know, Sunday like this, and a rock whoosh, comes flying through the window and breaks it open and lands not far from the pulpit. And people were aghast and they were wondering how John Murray would respond. And recognizing a teachable moment, deeper wisdom, he picked up the rock and said, This argument is solid and weighty. But it is neither rational nor convincing. Recognizing that deeper wisdom of non reactivity, of not turning our opposites into our enemies, is so important, much more important than any particular political season. If you've been around for a while here, you've probably heard these words before. But they are amongst my favorite, not because of what they endorse, but because they are so very, very harmful. And they seem to be, for some people at least, the very operating system upon which they live their lives. One of Charles Dickens' most odious characters said that life is divided into two camps, the beaters and the cringers. And what he's saying, basically, is that you better make yourself a beater Because if you're not, well, then you will be one of those who cringes. I get that kind of energy from this last political season, the gloating or the cowering, the triumphalism or the sense of having lost everything. And it's not just that something that costs individuals and relationships or is a false reading of reality. It also costs us in our political lives because it means that, in an ultimate sense, neither parties really take responsibilities for their own choices. I love that Mike Kinsley, some of you might know, his politics are similar to my own. But what he said this past week struck me as absolutely correct, that one party was offering us these last few months fat-free chocolate cake, and the other was offering us diet ice cream. All sweet, all sweet, No substance, it's only the other guy that's the one that's going to do the harm or the damage. There is deeper wisdom, I think, in the spiritual and political progressive Rabbi Michael Lerner, writing this past week at the Huffington Post, who wrote these dictates by which he is going to try to live, especially in his political life. He wrote, Do not demean those who disagree act as though every person, no matter what their politics, is created in the image of God or deserves fundamental respect and only challenge their ideas and policies without attributing bad motives to them. What Rabbi Lerner is encouraging us to do, and I am going to try to put it into practice in my own life, is to recognize that ultimate spark of an infinite source, an infinite value within each and every life. What well, we talk about here today and continuing the this message series on a path with heart, Jack Cornfield's great guide through the promises and the perils of the spiritual life is about embracing opposites. And while it's particularly on point with this election season, just come to a close, I mean, I'm the one who planned it this way, that way I would be preaching this message right after the election came to an end. It is about so much more and so very important, much more than any political season. Embracing opposites, learning to do so. Is for me, and I think for many of us, the most challenging aspects of growing in this life, of walking a spiritually mature path. Jack Cornfield, in talking about and in modeling what he means by embracing opposites and how it leads into and is an expression of spiritual maturity, tells a story in the book. It tells a story about someone with whom he has worked over the years, someone who, in her family of origin, was abused physically. And as her first steps into the spiritual life, she understandably, justly, absolutely, made the center of her spiritual practice her own healing, recognizing that whatever was done to her body and her psyche, it could not obliterate, it did not obliterate that which was within her and continued to be within her that had innate value, worth, and dignity. As she continued throughout the years of her practice and of her healing, she found that it took her to want to be a counselor to other people who had been abused, men and women who struggled as she had struggled with the sense of something being taken from them because they were the victims of violence, helping them to restore that wholeness that is a part in each and every one of our lives. And then a deeper step this woman took, the most challenging in many ways. She felt called in her counseling to work with people, mostly men, although not all, who were perpetrators themselves. She went in at first to these jails, these prisons, the places where these people worked on their counseling. And at first she said she was very, very clear who was right and who was wrong, who were the victims and who were the monsters. As some years evolved in this practice of working with the perpetrators, she found something else out. She found that she still absolutely opposed injustice and opposed cruelty. What she also found out is how many of these people had behind them almost, it would seem. A mom or an uncle or a father who had abused them and how many people behind those abusers had other abusers. She didn't fall into this particular woman in this story, what the Buddhists call wonderfully idiot compassion, which is having compassion... And sort of saying, hey, it's okay, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to make any sort of discrimination or discernment about what is harmful or beneficial for us as we live. That was not what she thought and what she came to practice at all. In fact, she said, and these are her words, no, with all of her strength. She said, no, these actions must not continue. But what she also saw is that behind these beaters were a whole bunch of cringers people who themselves had been deeply injured by others. She grew her own healed hearts enough to even embrace them in compassion. It didn't change her commitment, not at all. It deepened it to recognizing that healing and justice is something she wanted to work for for all people. Deepened it by embracing even the opposites that she could find in the perpetrators, both abused and abuser in the same person. In many ways, it's the ultimate demonstration of one of my favorite and most deep spiritual truths, which is that she learned not to transmit her suffering, but instead transformed her suffering. And it led her into a deeper, more full, complex understanding of the difficulty sometimes of our lives and the fullness that is inside so many human beings. We are, all of us, trained to think in either or. This can get us very far in life. Is it sunny out? Is it rainy? Do I wear a hat? Do I not? Is it cold? Do I wear a sweater? Is it warm? Do I just wear a shirt? Am I happy? Am I sad? There's a reason for those judgments. There's a reason for either-or thinking. Helps us sort of just get through the day, manage the quotidian stuff. The problem becomes, however, when we start to think that these judgments either-or are easy. That one person is just all one thing. When we start to make lazy judgments about what is harmful and what is beneficial, about who is absolutely awful and who is absolutely angelic. When we do this and fall into these patterns, we miss the fullness of our own lives, miss the fullness of other people's lives, and miss the fullness of reality. A lot of you know the name E.B. White, you know, Charlotte's Web and all that. Well, he also wrote for adults and wrote, I think it was The New Yorker back in the 1950s. Wrote that he woke every day with two completely contending impulses. One, to savor the world. To celebrate it for all its glory and goodness and wonderful qualities. Just celebrate, just jump up and down, sort of saying, you know, hooray. And then the other side of him wanting to change all the God-awful stuff that was wrong with life. Wanting to save life, wanting to savor it. He said, finally, it makes it simply hard to plan the day. (laughs) Savor or save. I think there's only one way to actually get this question wrong, which is yes or no. I think the ability to say yes, savor, yes, save, yes, celebrate, yes, change. Do both simultaneously and as much as E.B. White had that little one-liner there that y'all snickered at, it cannot happen in one day. This embracing of opposites takes time as we go through life. That's one of the truths of Jack Cornfield's story as well of this woman who healed is that we would never say it would be god-awful, it would be sadomasochistic, it would be cruel. To think that someone who was the victim of another person's violence would go right back to that person and grant forgiveness immediately say, how can I help to work with you? That would be awful, unfair, and also untrue. But in the time and the years of this person's healing emerging day after day after day of deepening and embracing her own opposites, when it takes longer, we discover what it is to truly engage in a courageous act and acts of healing, in which finally our own hearts grow, and can be the only kind of hearts that can heal other people. This past year, I read a series in the Enquirer, and I just want to give a little plug here for, uh, for you know, the old, going by the way, the dinosaur paper that arrives on your front stoop. If my wife was not a journalist. I think I'd be the only person I know my age who still had that paper arrive there. (laughs) You know, That's just evolution. That's all right. News will adapt and change. But as someone whose wife is in television news, they're not going to do this story. They're not going to do this story that I'm going to talk about because it's not short, it's not brief, it's not simple. And by the way, it has absolutely nothing to do with that yuck thing called advocacy journalism. If I never hear, watch, see, read another piece of advocacy journalism in my life, I will be happy. We're all smart enough if we research enough to make up our own minds. We don't need it spoon-fed to us and say, here, this is reality. This story, in two parts, thousands of words, a name is left with me from it, Leroy Lewis. Leroy Lewis, I think he was 18, 1920, when the story was being written. Now, perhaps, if he's made it that far, he's 21. Some of you know the HBO show, The Wire. He is a living, breathing incarnation of those kids. By the time he was 18, he'd been shot twice, the victim of gunshot twice. He was stabbed once. He was also himself suspected of attempted murder. After one of those times they put him in the hospital, it was assumed he was schizophrenic because he was hearing voices and pacing. It turns out he did not have schizophrenia. He had what many people who live on and off battlefields had. He had post-traumatic stress disorder just by growing up in inner-city Philadelphia. In the midst of the story, we see him, this tough young man, this aimless young man, talking to his mom on the phone, calling her, Mommy, yes, Mommy, I will try to. Yes, Mommy, I will. Yes, Mommy, I love you. We see his hope when he gets at first what he thinks is an interview at Walmart and then see his anger and his frustration when he cannot get a call back. I saw in Leroy Lewis's life so many opposites coming together. And by the way, Leroy Lewis... No one talking about him this past election season We might think from our political dialogue There there are two classes of people in America right now The struggling middle class And the super super rich I didn't hear the poor Get one mention whatsoever Perhaps because it's just too complex And doesn't have easy answers Just as Leroy Lewis's life Does not have an easy answer In his life, only, I think, if those opposites are embraced by him and the people who care about him, although they are few, might his life finally be transformed. And it's true for us as well. I think of people like Jeffrey Canada. Do you know his name, Jeffrey Canada? The Harlem Children's Zone? He exists for thousands of Leroy Lewis's Recognizing that there is not one simple answer to help people, pull people out of a cycle of dysfunction and dis-ease and suffering. Jeffrey Canada says it is about schooling and mentoring and during school hours and after school hours and those summer hours when so many of us had so many things to do like I did when I was growing up. Well, the Leroy Lewises of the world don't. To learn, to treat, and to see the whole in all of its complexity is to engage in the deepest and also most difficult kind of healing. It is to recognize within ourselves as well, sometimes our desire to see things as either or. It is to recognize the absolute value of what Einstein says when he said that the opposite of a small truth is a falsehood. The opposite of a great big truth is another great big truth. Both existing at the same time. It's like one of my favorite lines from Jesus' Gospels. It's a healing story, and I don't take this story literally. I think it is about a deeper spiritual healing or a healing of a mindset in which a father whose son has been ill has been cured, and his first thing that he says is, blurting it out, I believe, help me I don't believe. Simultaneously, both. It's kind of like a koan, a Zen riddle. There is no logical answer. I believe, I don't believe, simultaneously. you got to be one or the other. But that's where it's more than just the physical healing. It's more about healing that worldview that says we either have to be one thing absolutely or we have to be another thing absolutely. And that, in transcending those false choices, we might actually come to see something like this image up here. You can either say they're fighting each other, which I don't think they are, or they are simply, inexorably, joined together in a balance this is what embracing opposites can be and can do in our lives this is what cornfield says in his chapter As our spiritual practice matures, we learn to allow the opposites of our practice, the need for a teacher and our need to take responsibility for ourselves, the transcendent, unbelievable states of consciousness and the necessity to be present in a real, personal, intimate way, the power of karma, how our actions are conditioned by what has come before us and the capacity for our full human freedom and responsibility. We allow these opposites to be part of the dance of our spirit to hold it all with ease and humor, to be at peace with all of it. This healing of this either-or thinking is so deep and so true. It is the core of spiritually mature work. And what I think of when I think of this challenge, I think of something actually from long ago and far away in my life. I think of something I think associated with Disney in the 1970s. Remember, I'm not going to try and sing it. He's got the whole world in his hands. Remember that? Now, I do not believe this as an actual thing. I don't have this image of God, the divine, sitting there holding the world in the divine hands and everything's just going to be okay. No, what I see in there is a metaphor. I see in there a metaphor for what I understand as truly a divine call to grow our lives in such a way that we can be the ones holding the world in our hands through this deep internal aspiration to understand what it is to hold the opposites of our lives together. This is not moonbeams and it's not puppy dogs. This is the kind of work and the kind of story that Jack Kornfield shared about that woman in her healing. And by the way, embracing opposites, I think, is entirely intentional language. He doesn't say figuring out opposites. Figuring out how to manage opposites in terms of good polarity management within our lives so that we can be fully balanced and fully integrated. That's not what he says. Embracing opposites. Stretch your arms out really wide. Please, all of you together. Stretch your arms out really, really wide if you would. You're going to hit someone in the face probably. Just say, excuse me, I'm sorry. We grant forgiveness to each other here. It's cool. And bring your arms in and just embrace yourself. Seriously. Embrace. Now, if you're so called, I encourage you, and ask permission first if you don't know the person, turn to your next door neighbor and embrace them. Embrace. A hug is not good polarity management. A hug is an expression of care and love and devotion. And it is something we do, not just outside of ourselves, it is something we embrace within our very, very being. For those of you who are doing our 30 Days of Gratitude practice online, if you're not, check in there. You can take it at any moment. Part of where our practice is heading, a little later on, it takes a while to get there, is into those moments in our lives where we have experienced deep gratitude and also suffered tremendously. Not in that masochistic way of sort of saying to the universe, thank you, sir, may I have another. Not in that masochistic way of saying, I have suffered, I have struggled because I've been bad, because I deserve punishment, because it's the only way I can learn and grow. It's not like that. It is that deep capacity of the soul that embraces opposites that says, this has happened to me and that has happened to me. I don't get to be the choice. I don't get to be the author all the time. This is the truth of my life. It is here and I have grown through it and from it. And I know a deeper gratitude even because of it. It says William Blake, the great romantic poet, said, Joy and woe are woven fine, a clothing for the soul divine. I think it was first, I think it was the poet Rilke, but I became familiar with it first, to be honest, with Tom Waits. When he says, if I let go of my devils well, my angels, they may scatter too. (laughs) Learning to embrace these opposites is learning to recognize that we can have gratitude for the whole of our lives. Learning to say, this is true, and that is true, and that is true, and that is true, so that we can live as true people. I started with a Facebook story. I'm going to end with one. A number of weeks ago, a number of my colleagues and friends started putting up little notices over the space of a few days for the Reverend Mary Harrington. Excuse me one second. I didn't know Mary personally. She was older than me by about 15 years. We never had any schooling or anything like that together. Mary had, for the last 18 months, a diagnosis of ALS. You all know what ALS is? Lou Gehrig's disease. You know, it is one of the cruelest ways to die because as our body withers and as first we cannot walk, and then sometimes we cannot talk or even move or breathe, our brain maintains its capacity to be fully conscious of the ways in which our body is decaying and we are trapped within it. Mary died the week before Halloween, and so many of my colleagues posted their feelings and their thoughts, their blessings, their gratitude for having known her. In the last year that she was here on this earth, Mary lived that time incredibly intentionally. I know this because once people started putting up all those notices, I checked out her blog. It's called duckdreams.blogspot.com. She went to die where she could most fully live, in a tidal marsh, in a house off a of tidal marsh in rural Maine, where I think the Penobscot and the Somsquad are, I don't know, people from Maine, you can tell me how I'm wrong later. Where these two rivers come together and form this beautiful, beautiful place of nature. I mean, I read, as I was reading through her past old posts, I saw, you know, what we can really see when we unite the opposites in our life and not just bemoan our fate or decry what is happening to us. She had this one amazing, beautiful post in which she talks about that in looking on the marsh, she has seen that brown is not brown anymore. I mean, for so many of us, brown. (laughs) One day she looked out there and saw five colors of brown. Camouflage, she called it, and caramel, and tan, and a rich deep hue, and one other I can't remember. And the week before Halloween, Mary put up her final post, simply and beautifully and truthfully called "Loose Ends." Her first words in it are this: "Nothing ever really ends. I see this in the marsh." where things certainly change, but they do not stop. And then further on in her final post, her salutation, her benediction to life, she knows that her life is ending. And that she is leaving her life in the middle of so many aspirations and projects that she loved. Her desire to be the best minister that she could. Her desire to be the best wife that she could. And to be the best daughter. And to be the best parent. And that these things are ending for her. And yet what brings her peace and solace is that marsh where things change but they don't end. And where the ducks taking flight perhaps invite her to take flight as well. And these are her final words. My hope is that I too will sail off on such a gentle, peaceful current as my friends the geese and the ducks do. Leaving behind whatever loose ends my little ducky toes did not have the time to complete. But knowing that my people will come with me in my heart. I don't think there's any logical way to square that circle. Everything ends, this life ends, and yet nothing ever really ends. Those words held together embracing the opposites at the most extreme and perhaps the ultimate form of life. Perhaps a great logician could pick apart what she was saying, but I would just ask that logician to leave. Because I think the answer to that is even more poetry. It is Whitman. Do I contradict myself? Yes, I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. We all contain multitudes, multitudes of opposites and contrarian impulses and conundrums that we'll never quite be able to figure out but for this way. Learning to embrace. Embrace is the key to our wholeness. That knowing that we can't get our arms all around life, but we can day by day just grow a little more. Just grow in that embrace. Just grow in that invitation to enlarge and grow our hearts. And then trusting that through our embrace, that it is life itself that may embrace us as well. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God, Spirit's life itself, that which calls us mystically, mysteriously, to open our embrace. Our lives are not a puzzle to be solved and somehow to be completed. Our lives are a mystery to be shared, enjoyed, changed, and savored. May we learn to embrace and to embrace and to embrace and to learn to be embraced. Amen.